This is last week. This is, kind of brings us to our eighth week. Uh, and I'm redirecting a little bit. As I said um, the last week, I just want to talk about those uh, groups would not profess any type of Christianity. But because of time, and we didn't get to look at it last week, we're really just going to center our attention on two groups this, this last week. And that is Roman Catholicism and Islam. Uh, the reason I've kind of picked those is just because of the volume of numbers. Uh, Roman Catholicism kind of, they would claim to have about 1.2 billion people. Um, Islam about 1.6 billion. So right there, I mean, we're almost looking at a little bit more than a third of the population of the earth. And so that's kind of why I want to hinge on those two groups alone. Uh, now, that being said, I realize there is lots of groups I have not even touched on. Uh, I'm going to name a, a few of those because, and again, I, won't, I don't have time to get into them, but just so that when you go throughout your weeks, if you're aware of these groups, what they're out there, you ought to maybe spend at least a little bit of time in discovering what they believe. That way you're equipped, not only with the word, but with what they believe. So you can speak a little bit more intelligently to these groups. Um, some of them, again, I don't have the time, but some of them would be Freemasons, um, Scientology, what I'm going to label Kinism. Uh, obviously, we engage in those who would call themselves atheists and agnostics, uh, pantheism, the Baha'i religion, Taoism, Hinduism, Judaism, and then there are sections of each of those branches as well. So Zoroastrianism, I mean, there's several. So I just encourage you to kind of look up, um, and usually I do it at the end, but so that I don't forget. Um, and because this is our last week, I want to go ahead and just name a few of some men that I think are really gifted in the area of apologetics uh, that you can go and just if you want to do ongoing research. Now, there's a bunch out there that I probably only mentioned that they're really good, but just for time's sakes, uh, one of my favorites, again, Greg Bonson, Van Teel, uh, Matt Slick, who I actually I got a lot of information from him that we're going to be looking at. Matt Slick runs CARM, it's short uh, with a C, for Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. He touches on a lot of these groups. Um, William McManus, again, another person I got a lot of information from. Um, John MacArthur forwarded his book on biblical apologetics, which I got a lot of the information from. Uh, I think I pronounced his last name correctly. It's Scott Elephant, O-L-I-P-H-A-N-T. Uh, of course, we're familiar with James White, um, Ron Rhodes. Uh, some of you may not be familiar with, but um, and his name is Mike Gendron. He really focuses a lot of his time and energy uh, on Roman Catholicism. He was a Roman Catholic for a lot of years, and his whole, or the sum of his ministry focuses on Roman Catholicism. Um, many of you probably saw Saitan Bruggen Kate's DVD, um, and then another one who I think is really good, but I would uh, read his material with caution, and that is Vincent Chung. Uh, he's real good with presuppositionalism, but I would still recommend him. Um, and so let us get what we're going to do, and I'm going to try and divide this equally. We're going to spend about 20, 25 minutes looking at Roman Catholicism, and then we're going to jump into Islam. I'm hoping to be able to have a, at least five minutes left after the end, or toward the end of the class to open uh, for any questions. Uh, and if you want a reminder, I'll kind of go briefly over what we looked at each week. Um, and then, there, again, there's a test, which we'll do. 
No, I'm just kidding. Um, so let us look. Um, Mike Jenrim put together, and again, some of this is, I'm going to just read directly from kind of he put under his own website. And that is what he entitled, Is Rome the One True Church? He says, Roman Catholicism teaches there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church whose bishops are successors of the apostles and whose pope is the infallible head of the church. It teaches that whoever listens to its bishops is listening to Christ, and those who refuse to enter or remain in the Roman Catholic Church cannot be saved. Scripture reveals a much different church. The one, church, the one true church is composed of all believers in the Lord Jesus who have been born again of the Spirit. It only has one head, one shepherd, and one builder, Jesus Christ. He alone, by his Spirit, adds to the members, members of his church when a man repents and believes the gospel. At that moment, he becomes a member of this church. Like the penitent thief, he may have no opportunity of being baptized, but he has that faith, which is far better than any water baptism, the baptism of the Spirit. He may not be able to receive the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, but he is still part of the church. He may be excommunicated by ordained men and cut off from the outward ordinances of the professing church, but all the ordained men in the world cannot shut him out of the true church. It is a church whose existence does not depend on forms, ceremonies, cathedrals, churches, chapels, pulpits, vestments, organs, or any act or favor from the hand of man. Its existence depends on nothing but the presence of Christ in its spirit. The church is the body of Christ, the bride, the flock of Christ, and the household of faith, and the family of God. This is the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, Hebrews 12, 23. This is the royal priesthood, the chosen generation, uh, the peculiar people, the purchased possession, and the light of the world, 2 Peter 2, 9 through 10. This is the Holy Catholic Church of the Apostles' Creed. This is the church to which the Lord Jesus promises that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and to which he says, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. This is the church which seeks true unity, for they are all taught by one spirit and whose members are being conformed to the image of Christ. This is the only church which is truly Catholic which members in every part of the world where the gospel is received and believed. This is the only church which is truly apostolic because it is built upon the one foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Find that in Ephesians 2.20. It upholds the doctrines they preach. This is the only church which is certain to endure until the end of time. Nothing can altogether overthrow it and destroy it, its members may be again persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, and yet, but this church is never altogether extinguished. It rises from its afflictions, it lives on through fire and water, and when crushed in one land, it springs up in another. Enemies throughout the centuries have tried to destroy this church, and they have passed away to an ever eternal fire. The true church outlives them all, and this is the only true church of which no member can perish. Once enrolled in this church, sinners are safe for eternity. They are never cast away. 
the calling of God the Father along with the continual intercession of God the Son, coupled with the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, protects all who have been divinely chosen. They labor in the fields, white for harvest, by proclaiming the voice of the Good Shepherd, so his sheep will hear and follow him. They are not citizens of this world, but are only passing through on their way to heaven. This is the true church, which shall be truly glorious at the end, when all the earthly glory is passed away, and then this church shall be presented without spot before God the Father. Many, when they hear the term Catholic, you know, we most people think that means Rome. When essentially, and some people even define it, is it a large C or is it a little C? Well, the term Catholic just means universal. If you read the Apostles' Creed, you'll, you'll hear probably in there, uh, we belong to the Catholic Church. And in essence, yes, I do believe we here at Heritage Grace, I, if we belong to Christ, we do belong to the Catholic Church. But when I say that, obviously, I do not mean Rome in any way. What I'm saying is we belong to the universal church that, that Christ himself brought about. This church is a visible church throughout the world. And that's when I say when you hear, uh, do, am I Catholic? Well, obviously I'm not part of Rome, but I do belong to the universal body of Christ. And so this being said, I want to kind of give us a, a glimpse of the Roman Catholic view of its church itself. The Roman Catholic claims to be the one true church. Now I'm going to stop right here. A lot of my material that I'm going to be reading, if I say uh, CCC, really what that is, is their teaching from the catechism of the Catholic Church. Okay, So this is really direct sources from their catechism. Now I know a lot of people, when they hear the term catechism, they think Rome. Well, catechism really is just a, a summary of the doctrinal position of that particular group. Example, um, Presbyterians, a lot of groups will have a catechism. And so you can go to catechism class. It doesn't mean you're going to Church of Rome or anything. It's just, I want to hear what they teach. That's really what it means. So when I say the catechism, here what I'm talking about is the, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So they claim to be the one true church. If they believe that that, that church, their church, was founded by Jesus and the apostles, they believe it is necessary for salvation, has the authority to reconcile sinners with the church, to represent Christ, to dispense indulgences, to absolve sins, to instruct people in what they should do before God, and perform exorcisms. It possesses infallibility in the deposit of divine revelation, doctrine, and morals. It is guided by the apostles until Christ's return and people are moved to believe the gospel through the church. Only the Roman Catholic Church has the authority to interpret scripture and to administer sacraments. It is the minister of redemption, because only through it can full salvation come. Its ordained ministers act in the authority of Christ, but only when such authority is united with the Pope, who, is who they believe has been endowed with the authority of Christ. Okay, so now I just kind of want to look at some different subjects, okay, and how they view these subjects. And again, some of this, when I say again CCC, it's referring to the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. So concerning bishops, they would say bishops 
had no authority unless united with the Pope. They, from the article 883, they say the college or body of bishops has no authority unless united with the Roman pontiff. Okay, They believe the first Pope being Peter. Concerning the church, Catholic is the one true church. Concerning, and they believe the church has authority to reconcile sinners by imparting to his apostles, to his own power, to forgive sin. The Lord also gives them the authority to reconcile sinners with the church. This again is found in their catechism. The church has the authority and moves people to believe the gospel in their catechism. But I would not believe in the gospel had the had not the authority of the Catholic Church already moved me. They believe that the church dispenses indulgences to remove temporal punishment. Okay, they believe it dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. Concerning an indulgence, it's a partial or kind of a, according to it, it removes either part or all the temporal punishment due to sin. Okay, they believe that the church is the minister of redemption. They believe, again, the redemption dispenses, they say, of the church, which as a minister of redemption dispenses and applies the authority. Okay, uh, they believe that the church is necessary for salvation. They believe that all salvation comes from Christ and the head through the church, which is the body basing itself on scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the church is a pilgrim now on earth and is necessary for salvation. They believe concerning the papacy, the leader of the Roman church. Papacy has authority of Christ. They would say the Roman pontiff and the bishops are the authentic teachers, that is, teachers endowed with the authority of Christ. Concerning priests, they have the authority to absolve sins. In the Catechism, 1495, it says, Only priests who have received the faculty of absolving from the authority of the church can forgive sins in the name of Christ. Speaking of infallibility, infallibility is the deposit of divine revelation, doctrine, and morals concerning salvation. Full salvation, they believe, is only through the Roman Catholic Church. They say, for it is only through Christ's Catholic Church, which is the all-embracing means of salvation, that they can benefit fully from the means of salvation. They would say that the church has authority to interpret Scripture, that only they do. They say about the manner of interpreting Scripture is ultimately subject to the judgment of the church. They would say that the task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the leadership of the magistrate of the church, that is, to the pope and to the bishops in communion with him. Again, back on to sin. They believe that they have the authority to absolve sins. They believe that when Christ said, feed my sheep, the power to bind and loose connotes the authority to absolve sins, according to their catechism. And so now, go ahead. Well, going back to what you just mentioned about um, how the Roman Catholic Church is the only one that has authority to interpret Scripture. Mm -hmm. What's kind of funny about that is that 
No, like said Jesus. So what are they And at one time, many, many years ago, they would literally chain their Bible, the Bible, to the pulpit so that the average Joe could not get it, read it for himself, uh, and, and try and have an understanding of it. You know, it was subject to um, their bishop to read it to them and interpret to them. Um, I, I think that kind of goes on in a lot of different religions, but this one specifically. Um in about 10 minutes more on uh, Roman Catholicism, I kind of want to give you a summary of the process of salvation found in Roman Catholicism. Salvation in Roman Catholicism is a process. And to begin this process, God grants actual grace to a person which enables him to believe in Christ and also believe in the truth of the Catholic Church. And so after belief, the person must be baptized, which is necessary for salvation. This baptism erases original sin, unites the person with Christ, infuses grace into the person. If we have time, we'll kind of get into imputed versus infused. And they would say, and grants justification. After baptism, he is then saved. But to maintain his salvation, it is necessary for him to perform good works and participate in the sacraments which provide grace that is proper to each sacrament. This is necessary in order to maintain infused grace. However, grace can be lessened by what they would call venial sins or completely lost by mortal sins. Venial sins remove part of the infused grace but not the saving grace known as sanctifying grace. To remedy the problem of venial sins, a Catholic is to take the Eucharist and also perform penance. However, penance must be done with perfect contrition. But there is a problem. Even though there are sins absolved by a priest, in confession, the punishment due to a person because of a sin remains. And to deal with that remaining punishment, indulgences are administered to deal with the punishment due to the guilt of sins already forgiven. These indulgences draw upon the good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary and of Christ and the saints. And so to obtain the remission of temporal punishment do their sins. Furthermore, the indulgences can be applied to themselves or the dead, who are, they believe, in purgatory. Now, if the Catholic has committed a mortal sin, then all of his infused grace is lost. To, re to regain this grace, he must partake of penance since it helps restore grace that was lost to the Roman Catholic Church. Participate again in the sacraments, take the Eucharist, keep the commandments, these commandments referring to the Ten Commandments, perform penance and do indulgences in order to attain, maintain, and regain salvation, as well as reduce the punishment due to him for the sins of which he has already been forgiven. As you see, uh, to me, this is a sum of a very much a works righteousness religion. 
Um, and so continuing with that, I kind of want to give you kind of with the subject matter. They would say of baptism, by imparting the life of Christ's grace, erases original sin and turns a man back toward God. But the consequences for, for nature weaken and incline to evil, persist in man, and summon him to spiritual battle. They would say that our Lord tied the forgiveness of sins to faith and baptism. They'd say it is through the sacrament of penance that the baptized can be reconciled with God and the church. Penance has, a, has rightly been called the, by the Holy Fathers a laborious kind of baptism. This sacrament of baptism is necessary for salvation for, who, for those who have fallen after baptism, just as baptism is necessary for salvation for those who have not yet been reborn. By Christ's will, the church possesses the power to forgive the sins of the baptized and exercise it through the bishops and priests, uh, normally in the sacrament uh, of penance. Again, they would say that the Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation. They, in concerning communion with the body and blood of Christ, they would say it increases the communicant's union with the Lord, forgives his venial sins, and perseveres him from grave sins. They believe that confession to a priest is an essential part of the sacrament of penance. They would say the doctrine and practice of indulgences in the church are closely linked to the effects of the sacrament of penance. And so you say, well, what's an indulgence? An indulgence, an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which as the minister of redemption dispenses and applies it as it removes either part or the whole of it. They would say that the faithful can gain indulgences for themselves or apply them to the dead. And they would say that only priests who have exercised the faculty of absolving from the authority of the church can forgive sins in the name of Christ. Um, now, speaking of one of their uh, confessions, uh, the Council of Trent, they would say, teaches that the Ten Commandments are an obligation for Christians and that the justified man is still bound to keep them. They would say that the Second Vatican Council confirms the bishops, successors of the apostles, receive from the Lord the mission of teaching all peoples and preaching the gospel to every creature so that all men may attain, may attain, attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the Ten Commandments. Now, is it wrong to observe the Ten Commandments? Obviously not. But when you think that you have to do so in order to obtain salvation, again, it gets back to you're trying to earn your salvation. Go ahead. Is, is there a, a split in the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, on the pre- and post-Vatican II? There is. Okay. I just I didn't really have time. Typically, a lot of this would be after the second pope. If you look, and that's why it's kind of hard to go through the history of the Roman Catholic Church because a lot of their doctrine was developed over the years. It's not like you had it with, they would say, Peter, the first one. A lot of it developed, again, with purgatory, um, really with terms like ex-cathedra. Where did indulgences come in? 
trying to pay, uh, essentially get out of purgatory again that. Typically, that was really, I think, for money. You know, if you, I don't know how many people have seen Luther. Within Luther, he had someone like Tetzel. And really, he went around trying to bring up money for the Roman Catholic Church. It was, hey, if you, get, if you give me this, you know, you will be, your friends or family will be removed from purgatory. Right. So to me, it was just a way to get more money for the church. Yeah, they don't like you saying that. But yeah, that's essentially what, it, what it, I think why it came into being. Um, and of course, if you have the authority to proclaim, why wouldn't you <laughs> if it gets more doctrine? Because then all you can say is really this is, we're justified because we say this teaching is from Christ. So they would say you can't really, you know, who are you to say anything against it? Um, I'm just looking at the time. Again, uh, just uh, go quickly through it. Catechism of the Roman um, Catholic Church. A lot of people, and I wasn't familiar with this until looking it up. Um, most, if you're for, most Roman Catholics would not acknowledge this, and so what I would do is point them to what their specific doctrine says. And within the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, they actually say that people can become a god. And hear this in the Catechism in 460, it says, "For the Son of God became man, so that we might become God, the only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us." shares in his divinity assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods uh, you can look that up again it's it's the ccc of 460 uh, they would say they merit grace unto eternal life again to observe the ten commandments to obtain salvation uh, this is found in uh, the article 2068 so that all men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the Ten Commandments. Some counter verses for that, Romans 3.28, Romans 4.5, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. We've already kind of gone over some of that. They would also, in here in just a couple minutes, we're going to look at Islam, but speaking of Islam, they believe the church's relationship with the Muslims, the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator in the first place, amongst whom are the Muslims. These profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. Seems to kind of be in, you know, in contradiction to what they've already said, but nonetheless, it's, you can look it up in their articles. Um, concerning, and this is to me what I really what I try and get out with the Roman Catholic is justification. And so they speak saying, speaking on justification, if anyone saith that a man is truly absolved from his sins and justified because he has surely believed himself absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified by he who believes himself justified, and, and that by this faith alone absolution and justification are affected, let him be anathema. The term anathema simply means to be accursed or cut off. You are no longer part of the church and you do not have salvation. So if you are saying that salvation is by faith alone, they would anathematize you. Again, if you speak to the average Roman Catholic on the street, they may not admit that. So my 
So what you ought to do is, again, point back to what does what their catechism say. And this is what's found. Um, of course, they also believe you uh, can know God and be reconciled to him through natural law. When they speak of natural law, what they're actually referring to is the obedience of the Ten Commandments. Real quickly, go ahead. I don't believe in specific revelation in order to have salvation or maintain their salvation or their covenant. Is that what you're saying? What's that? They don't have to uh, have specific revelation, you're saying? Or are you saying that? Well, they believe that the revelation is going to come different ways, but one of which is the Ten Commandments. So if you're obedient to the Ten Commandments, along with this other stuff, then you would be saved. Now, again, and they know that people aren't going to be perfectly obedient. And so that's why you have all these other things. Why the different sins, you know, or, and that's why you have penance, confession, all these different things. Because they know you're not going to be perfectly obedient to the Ten Commandments. Um, and that's why they have, you know, they would baptize a baby to remove that original sin from him or her. Um, their biggest thing, you know, Again, some Roman Catholics will say they do not pray to Mary, but rather they pray through her. They believe that they are, or some may or may not admit that she is called a co-redemptrix. She, uh, with Christ, would, she can absolve our sins. She can essentially forgive us. Uh, and to highlight that, I just want to pull out a couple things from their catechism. They would say, entrust our carry our cares to Mary, Holy Mary, Mother of God. We can entrust all our cares and petitions to her. She prays for us as she prayed for herself. Okay, they say, ask Mary to pray for us. They say Mary is an advocate. She is our mediatrix. Speaking of, therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the Church under the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, and being a co-redeemtrix. They say Mary brings us the gifts of eternal salvation. They quoting, the mother of the members of Christ, she was preserved free from all stain of original sin. She is queen over all things. They believe that Mary delivers our soul. Quoting from again, by Mary's prayers, she delivers souls from death. Mary brings us the gifts of eternal life. By her manifold intercession, continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Mary is worshipped when she, Mary, is a subject of preaching and worship. She prompts the faithful to come to her. This was in the Vatican Council, page four twenty. Some of these again you can look up. Mary, they believe, is second only to Jesus. They compare Mary to God. Here they say. Vatican website, so no man goeth to Christ but by his mother. They believe that Mary made atonement for the sins of man. Mary, by her spiritual entering into the sacrifice of her divine son for men, made atonement for the sins of man and merited the application of the redemptive grace of Christ. They believe that Mary crushed the head of the serpent. All our hope do we repose in the most blessed virgin, an all-fair and immaculate one who was crushed, who has crushed the poisonous head of the most cruel serpent and brought salvation to the world? 
Uh, this was uh, Pope Pius uh, the Ninth. What's that? Wasn't too pious, was he? No. <laughs> Go ahead. I was, was going to just add, because I know many Catholics don't believe what the catechisms and the, sure. the official doctrines of the church teach. Do you Have you had any experience, not debating on the street Catholics, but like no. Uh, uh, no, a higher up, um, somebody, because again, so is your, is your approach going to be, well, your approach is going to be the same, but is the information going to be different? with, you know, Joe Schmo Catholic on the street and say a bishop or an archbishop or, you know, head of a diocese. But it seems that there's going to be a, a different level of understanding. So is it, is it, are you going to approach them differently? Um, kind of depends because even one who would, who would know the catechism, what he may then is just say, well, that you're interpreting it wrong. So this is how it should be interpreted. Okay. Uh, and th that's how uh, I have spoken to, you know, a Catholic priest, um, at the time, I, we were going back and forth on some errors in the Apocrypha and why I wouldn't accept it, and then kind of pointed these out. Uh, the average Jew on the street probably is not going to be familiar with that, so what I use might be a little bit different. Um, but that's why really what I, even those who know it and know it well, I'm going to try and get back to justification, um, because that's really, to me, kind of what makes or breaks it. Um, because they may, again, going in, I could point out all these things about Mary and all this, and it's just where you're interpreting it wrong. Well, I mean, when it's pretty crystal clear, it's right there. Um, and I just, and that's one of the things I think we ought to do is use their own sources. Because they'll say, well, you got that from a Protestant website. Let's just go to your own, let's just look at the information you will provide to me and examine it. I think you gain a lot more ground by doing that, too. Uh -huh. Using their own sources, because that develops that. Sure. You know, I think that's good. I think it's the same though with any confrontation as far as apologetically. It, with your nominal people, you're going to camp out on that major issue you know for sure everybody knows what the difference on. Sure. It's very explanatory, easily explained. And then you got the guys that are more technical. I'm going to definitely go for the theosis stuff. I'm definitely going to go for the other uh, heresies that are, you know, lined out, you know, with mm -hmm. the guys that can actually hang on that level. But you're going to do that with side note that Eastern Orthodox Church does believe in the theosis too. Mm -hmm. uh, just so you know, I, I think that's heretic. <laughs> <laughs> like one of the people that kind of like I refer back to because he spends so much time refuting the, the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church and that is Mike Gendra. And the reason why I bring him up because even in his, he admitted, you know, later when he was a Roman Catholic, he read very little of the Bible. Most of what they factor on is tradition and just kind of going through the motions. And then you're accepted because A, B, and C. Um, and because of our time, I don't really have, uh, I mean, there's lots of information we can go over uh, that they get through the catechism. Um, but because of our time, I'm going to kind of rush through a couple of other things, and then we'll get to the subject of Islam. Um, Chris actually, several weeks ago, you know, when he was walking us through and teaching us through James, um, taught us this and now I kind of just want to say it again again this is from uh, Mike Gendron I kind of want to read these two sheets because I think they're very important and highlight um, how to refute him and that is does James say the book of James does James say man is justified by works it would say one of the most popular verses in Roman Catholicism is James 224 
For it is written, You see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. So why does James appear to contradict Paul and the other writers of the New Testament? It is because Paul is dealing with the nature of justification and James is dealing with the nature of faith. James is not teaching how one is justified. He is contrasting two kinds of faith, living genuine faith versus a dead spurious faith. That is why he gives three illustrations of living faith, Abraham, Rahab, and the human body. James wrote, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. The Greek word for justify also means to vindicate, to defend or uphold. So James is saying, You see then that a man is vindicated by his works and not only by a mere profession of faith. The word vindicate could also mean to clear from suspicion. In no way is James teaching that sinners are justified by works because he has already made the point that salvation is a gift from God according to God's will and not the will of man. James is asking professing Christians who have not shown any evidence of their new life in Christ to show me your faith. You see that in James 2.18. But faith is invisible to man. It is an unseen relationship between man and God. And since faith cannot be seen, the best way to prove one's faith is to be a doer of the faith and not merely hearers. See that in James 1.22. So those who do the word of God will live a righteous life in obedience to God. That is why James says, I will show you my faith by my works. James 2.18. James is saying that justifying faith will be evidenced by works. Paul, on the other hand, is dealing with false teachers who said that you must have faith plus, and plus obey the law. So both agree that justifying faith precedes and produces works, Ephesians 2.10. This, of course, also in harmony with Jesus, who said to his disciples, go and bear fruit. He said, when you bear fruit, you prove to be my disciples. You see that in John 15, 8. And when there is no fruit, it is an indication that you are separated from Christ. So the parallel is worth noting. Just as works do not produce justification, the fruit does not bring the tree into existence. The fruit reveals whether the tree is alive or dead. Jesus also taught that a tree is known by its fruit. You see that in Matthew 7, 16. And so we could also say that as a, just as a fish swims or birds fly, converted sinners pursue sanctification by doing the works of God created them to perform. Faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. Faith gives evidence of, his, of its existence by righteous living. Anyone who claims to have a right relationship with God will have a life of good works. I'm going to skip over some just because of time. Um, I want to real quickly um, read what he said concerning the sacrifice of the Mass, and then we'll look at uh, Islam. The Roman Catholic Mass must be attended by Catholics every Sunday and holy days of obligation under the penalty of mortal sin. Following are seven biblical reasons why the Mass is a Catholic tradition that violates the perfect sacrifice for sin that was offered once for all sin for all time. 
First of all, Jesus was never a victim as Rome purports. He went to the cross willingly in humble obedience to his father, Philippians 2.8. When Jesus said we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, his words were spiritual and not to be taken literally. I find that in John 6.63. He was using figurative language as he often did. His disciples were familiar with the figurative phrase, eating and drinking, to describe the appropriation of divine blessings to one's innermost being. Those who take eating and drinking literally must become cannibals to, etern- to obtain eternal life. Therefore, consuming blood, though, was forbidden. Those who did were cut off. Je- Jesus would not have asked the Je- Jews to break the law in Leviticus 7.10. This also presents a dilemma. What if a person eats and drinks but does not believe? Or what if a person believes but does not eat and drink? The alleged change of bread and wine into flesh and blood is not a miracle but a hoax because there is no change in appearance, substance, or taste. True biblical miracles were real and observable. Rome says that the Mass is a bloodless sacrifice but a a sacrifice. Without blood, though, cannot atone for sins. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a memorial, not as a sacrifice. And nowhere in the New Testament do we find priests offering sacrifices for sin or masses for the dead. Catholic priests violate Christ's unique role as mediator between God and man. And to worship the elements of the Mass is to commit the sin of idolatry, uh, which you can look at the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20. And just, well, I'm going to have to fly through the subject of Islam, but I think it's kind of too important to skip. So rather than kind of giving a history, what I want to do is just look at their doctrines. Uh, concerning God, they would say there is only one God. God is called Allah by Muslims. Allah sees all things, is present everywhere. Allah is the sole creator and sustainer of the universe. Allah is not a trinity, but is one. Allah is all-knowing and all-powerful. Allah created the heaven and the earth. Concerning salvation and judgment, Allah will judge all people on the day of judgment. If your good deeds exceed your bad deeds, and you believe in Allah and sincerely repent of your sins, you may go to heaven. There is an eternal hell for those who are not Muslims, or not practicing Islam and not of the true faith. They would say hell is a place of unlimited capacity. There is, they believe there is a tree in hell. Heaven, heaven paradise, garden uh, of bliss and fruit has rivers with maidens, pure and holy, and carpets and cushions. There will be a, a physical, they believe there will be a physical resurrection of all people on the day of judgment. Uh, judgment is based on a person's sincere repentance and righteous deeds. They believe, obviously, there's an afterlife. Um, they believe that the Holy Spirit is the angel, uh, Gabriel. Um, they believe that Muhammad is Allah's greatest and last prophet. They believe the Quran is Allah's word. He literally spoke it to Gabriel, who gave it to Muhammad. Uh, Of course, they believe that fasting is to be observed during the month of Ramadan. Drinking alcohol is forbidden. Gambling is forbidden. Man is made from the dust of the earth. 
and there is no last-minute repentance. There are, I don't really have time to get into it, but there are essentially there's three major branches within Islam. You have the Sunni Muslims, which comprise mo- of most uh, Muslims throughout the world. Uh, they constitute 90% of Muslims. Uh, you have the Shiite Muslims. You will probably see them as they're the ones typically that are more extreme. Um, and then you have the Sufi Muslims. Essentially, that I would say they're almost a, a Gnostic part of Islam. Um, a lot of a mysticism within there. Uh, the biggest difference really between the Sunni and Shiite, apart from some extremism, is just who... Who was the successor from Muhammad? That's kind of one of their biggest differences. But some of what they use, though, is they will try and they will try and say that Islam is unified. They will act as if there's no division, and then they will look to Christians and say, "Look, you guys have uh, divisions," and so that would be one reason alone to discard you. But there's divisions within their own camp. And so they can't really use that. I kind of want to go over real quickly the, the, what they call the five pillars of Islam. Um, I don't know if I can pronounce it, and so I don't want to pronounce it wrong, so I'm just going to spell it. S-H-A-H-A-D-A. Uh, they would say that this is the Islamic proclamation, that there is, one, there is no true God except Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Jihada, there you go. Uh, prayer, they say uh, prayer involves confession of sins. Um, and they have different names of prayers. They also, um, of course, believe in fasting. Their prayers would be pronounced, you might pronounce this for us, S-A-L-A-T, Salat, or Salat. Um, the Sayum is in fasting, S-A-U-M. I don't know that one. Okay. They, uh, of course, believe in fasting. Ramadan is a time. Uh, they believe certainly in giving in charity, alms. They called that the uh, zakat, I believe, Z-A-K-A-T. And, of course, making a pilgrimage. This is the pilgrimage to Mecca. They believe all Muslims, if they are able, are to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, concerning true faith in Islam, he is a supreme being of all his angels. Angels reside in the unseen and carry out the commands of Allah. Uh, they believe essentially in what they would call several books. Uh, the main one being the Quran, the Torah, they would say they agree with, uh, which is the first five books of the, Moses. Uh, the Injil, which they would say is the gospel message of Jesus in the New Testament, and the Psalms. Um, and if interested, um, just because of time, this is a whole page on the Quran, the history of the Quran. Um, if you had, if you want more information, let me know. You're more than welcome to have it. Uh, again, I got that off the website Carm through Matt Slick. Um, this is another uh, now the yeah, same site. Um, what I did is, you know, I don't have time to go through them, but this is several Islamic terms. And so when they use these terms, it would be helpful to know what they're speaking about. Um, some of them, again, I'll just kind of read real quickly. Again, Ahmad is another name for Muhammad. A caliph, you'll hear that term, is a Muslim leader. 
uh, the Dajjal or D-A-J-J-A-L is speaking of the Antichrist. Uh, the F-I-Q-H is speaking of religious law. The Hadith is the sayings and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad recorded by his followers, considered authoritative and perfect. A saying is called a, a sunnah. Um, they would say that an imam is a political head of, the, of an Islamic state. Um, concerning jihad, really what they would say is that it really means striving, fighting against one's own self, own sinful self. Uh, you'll hear this more, you know, we think of it uh, also a physical fight for the truth of Islam, not, not allowing anyone to steal the ability of worship. Uh, you might hear it referred to as holy war. Uh, of course, if you read the Quran, that can be either spelled with a K or a Q. They'd say it's a holy book of Islam given to Muhammad by Allah through the archangel Gabriel. Uh, Quran literally means the recital because he specifically was to recite this. Mecca is the holy city of Islam. It is the birthplace of Muhammad. A mosque is a Muslim house of worship. Um, real quickly, just with about five minutes left, what uh, Matt Slick did again is just kind of write down some questions for Muslims. And this is kind of where you get into the task of apologetics. For example, the Quran says in Surah 5.9, and that's kind of what it's referred to, um, the Quran says, to those who believe and do good deeds of righteousness, hath Allah promised forgiveness and a great reward, Surah 5.9. So the question you can ask him, are you doing good enough deeds to receive salvation on the day of judgment? Are you doing all you can, or are you relaxing in your dedication to Allah. The Quran says, O ye who believe, turn to Allah in sincere repentance. It may be that your Lord will remit from you your evil deeds and bring you into the gardens underneath which rivers flow. Concerning that, how do you know you are sincere enough to be forgiven of Allah? Does it give you peace to know that even if you are very sincere, then at best, you might receive forgiveness of sins. You say that you know you're insincere enough in your repentance before Allah. How do you know that you're not deceiving yourself? Is your heart really good enough to muster enough sincerity before a holy and righteous God? If you say yes, I would have to ask you, are you being prideful? You are not being prideful, then are you boasting in your sincerity? Um, in the Bible, we read John fifteen thirteen. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In Christianity, the greatest act of love is performed by God himself, since Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus is the one who fulfilled his own words on this. He actually laid down his life for us. So, according to Islam, what is the greatest act of love performed by Allah? If what Jesus said is true, then hasn't someone besides Allah performed the greatest act of love? And so, why do you as a Muslim want me to give up such a great love performed by God himself 
for your belief in Allah, who only loves people if they are Muslims. Islam teaches that the Holy Spirit is Gabriel. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit lives in Christians. And so, if the angel Gabriel is the Holy Spirit, how can he indwell in us? And to back this up, you can go to the text 2 Timothy 1.14 from the NASB. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And one thing I also want to put out, um, and I watched a live um, debate between um, a Muslim. This person was actually, prior to becoming a Muslim, was going to be going to a Baptist seminary. Uh, he debated with a friend of mine in a Christian church. And he really said, you know, he hopes for salvation. He admits this. He says, if I do A, B, and C, I hope that God will grant me forgiveness of sins. And then he believed that Allah showed him what to do, but he still would, and freely admitted that he has no true knowledge of being saved. And yet, so the question back to almost epistemology, the doctrine of knowledge, can we know that we have hope? Can we know that we will be forgiven? Not just hope so, Christ said in his words, he says, I have written these things unto you that you may know you have eternal life. And so, to me, that's what I, and one of the things that I would say Roman Catholicism and Islam really have in common, and that is trying to work for salvation. You know, they both know that they're not perfect. You walk them through the Ten Commandments, they'll admit that they've, they've you know, they're guilty and going back to infuse righteousness real quickly what that is it's if you think of glue to fuse something together essentially would be to glue something so what we're taking if i said i want to fuse these things together let's say i have this god's righteousness and my own pretended righteousness i say through the roman catholic teaching i infuse them together i know i'm not good enough so what i do is take god's righteousness Put them together. I fuse them together. Well, according to Scripture, that is not true. We do not add our righteousness to the righteousness of God to be, you know, not guilty before Him. Rather, imputed righteousness is that Christ Himself gives us His righteousness so that when I go before the throne of God, I can be declared not guilty because of what Christ has done for me. I'm getting, the, I'm getting the dismissal now. Um, but I just want to, um, in all of this, um, thank you for your time. And again, I know there's so many groups we didn't cover. Uh, but again, if you have questions for myself, for John, for Chris, for the leaders of the church, for Emilio, please see them. Because I think they would be more than happy to go over them with you. See, Scott, um, you want to lead us out in prayer? Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you.